Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Sam Payne, and I've actually never been to this service before. So this is exciting. Woo, yeah, somebody's awake. Nor- so I am the uh, Southwood Youth Minister, so normally a lot of you guys are in here. I'm corralling the students over there, and so I'm super stoked to be here with you guys this morning. And, and also, on that note, thank you guys for showing up on Daylight Savings and the first Sunday of spring break. So you guys are the real MVPs right now. You guys are the real MVPs. Yeah, this is great. This is going to be a great Sunday morning. Uh, well, before, before we jump in, I just want to start off with a story, um, just so you guys can kind of get to know me. And the story has to do with the number 65. 65. And no, I'm not looking towards retirement. And no, I'm not looking towards like, all right, sweet, I can finally be done, you know, and just take a break. But 65 was the number and the grade I needed on my final exam for my physics one class to pass the class. 65. And so I was an engineering major. And so this was, yeah, one person, there we go, engineers taking over the world. So I needed 65 to pass this class. And again, this was a core class, which means you fail this class. Basically, your whole schooling gets all kinds of messed up. So I need a 65, 65. Now, 65 doesn't sound that big of a deal, right? But I had three tests before this. And the highest one I made was a 45. My first test was a 45. Second one was a 30. And the third one was a 40. And so if you add all those numbers together, you barely get over a 65. So here I am walking into my physics one final, freaking out. And the other portion of the story is the test was what we call a cumulative test. Yeah, yeah, which basically means all the stuff that I just failed is also going to be on the test. Thank you, professor. You're an awesome dude. Man, that's great. Engineering, good times. But I walk into this final, take the test. It was like seven or eight questions, answered everything, left it, yeah, yeah, just because I answered it doesn't mean I got it right, left, started talking to my buddy, who was like one of the smartest people in class, we started comparing answers, and I got none of his answers, so I was like, man, I'm about to fail this class, I'm about to take physics over again, why am I even in engineering if I can't pass, this is my freshman year, this is like one of the basic classes. So I leave, I go on break because it's the final. Professor posts grades, and I didn't see what my final exam grade was, but I got a D in the class. I got a D. I've never been so excited for that terrible of a grade before. (laughs) Never been that excited. And so I got this D, and I could tell you from the bottom of my heart, I did not make a 65 on that test. I did not. And so the professor exhibited this thing that we in Christian culture talk about a lot, but he exhibited this thing called grace. He exhibited grace. And so what grace is, grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. As in, you don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you. You don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you. And so it was one of the most explicit versions of grace that I have I've seen. 
And so a lot of time when we talk in Christian cultures, we talk about grace, about how God's grace saved us. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God freely bestows that on us. And we're going to actually talk about that this morning. But the professor exhibited grace. Now, the burning question in your head right now is, did you actually graduate? I did. So this is me. This is me. I'm on the left. I'm on the left. I graduated. I'm a civil engineer. And life was great. I ended up retaking physics, in case you're wondering. And I got an A in it, so the D actually doesn't count. But I made it. Now, at this point, this is kind of awkward. This is where I have to stand in front of you guys and apologize to you guys for something. I, unfortunately, if you notice from this photo, there's a certain color that's missing. So let's all take a moment and cry because Sam, unfortunately, did not graduate from A&M. I'm sorry, I know, you guys can say that, that's fair. If I would have known that this was the promised land flowing with milk and honey, I would have came up here way earlier. But I went to a small school called Laterno University and graduated with a civil engineering degree. And if you're wondering how small Laterno is, that was my graduating class. <laughs> there was three of us, civil engineering, December 2014. That was my graduating class. But, yeah, three of us. So, graduation ceremony was great, though. I <laughs> got in and got out. It was great. But have you ever experienced this type of grace? Have you ever experienced grace? Have you ever experienced grace? See, maybe it's, maybe it's you're, you're driving down the highway and you know you're speeding. The cop that pulls you over knows you're speeding. And so, you end up Getting pulled over, this cop comes up to you and he says, hey, you were going like 15 over, but here's the deal, I'm not going to give you a ticket. You deserve it, for sure, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. Or maybe you're a, you're a teenager sitting here, you're a kid, and you're like, man, I just disobeyed my parents so bad. I just disrespected them. I just talked back to them. I just did all these things, and then your parent is coming into your room. You know you're about to get reamed. And then your parent says, hey, you're good. I forgive you. You deserve punishment, but you don't get it. Or maybe you've been out to eat with your family, and you get up to go pay, and the waiter looks at you and says, hey, you're good. Somebody covered your meal. Somebody covered your meal. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Somebody covered it for you. And so when we talk about grace... We talk about something that is unmerited, you don't deserve it, but it is freely given, freely bestowed upon you. And if you look all throughout the course of the Bible, there is a common thread of grace in the Bible. And so there's a lot of passages that we can go to this morning, but we're actually going to go somewhere different. And we're going to go to Matthew 1. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 1 this morning. It's also going to be up on the screen As you turn to Matthew 1, you're going to find out real quick what Matthew 1 is. A genealogy. Yep, nothing says cool new youth guy like talking about a genealogy for your first sermon. But a genealogy. And so while you guys are turning there, we're going to talk about how God has shown us grace through the genealogy and how we can apply that to our lives. And if you're anything like me, You don't spend a lot of time in genealogies. It's not because you don't read your Bible. It's because when you get to genealogies, what do you do? Skip. Sweet. 
man, I just read, you know, man, I, I can go through the Bible so fast. Skipping genealogies, right? But as I was sitting here prepping and praying and figuring out where God was leading me this morning, these genealogies kind of hit me to the core because I think there's so much good things that happen in a genealogy when we take the time to look at them. And so... By the end of today, by the end of this morning, this is, what, this is the main point. This is where everything leads up. I'm already giving it to you right now, right from the get-go, that God's grace is paramount and sufficient for all. Paramount over everything, supreme, sufficient, all-covering. And we're going to see that from the genealogies. We're going to see that from the genealogies. And we're going to do that through a couple of different ways, through our preparations, our problems, and our perspectives. So if you like kind of alliterations, you got three P's right there. Preparation, problems, and perspectives. So when we look at the, the genealogy, we see the life and lineage all the way to Jesus. And then Jesus' goal on earth was to save and redeem sinners. And so the biggest gift of grace that all of us have ever received was the fact that when we deserved alienation from God, when we deserve death, when we deserve to be separated from him, God sent his son to die for us in the purest form of grace. And we're going to see that, and we kind of can, can picture that, and we can grasp that, but also in looking through the genealogies, we're going to see that that wasn't the first time that God has exhibited grace. Actually, the genealogies are full of God's grace, and we're going to look at that this morning. So let's dive in. So paramount to our preparations. And we get this from Matthew 1.1. So read this. It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So this is the first book of the New Testament, first chapter, first verse. And we see the lineage of Jesus Christ. And he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. So when we talk about preparation, we're actually going to talk about like, okay, why are these guys important? Remember David, he's the he's guy that has a slingshot, right? Hit the giant in the forehead, right? He's that guy. And then Abraham, the father of all the nations, he's the guy that got the song stuck to him apparently. Father Abraham and many, right? And so when we look at David and Abraham, why are these two guys so important? And so we come to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and this is called the Abrahamic Covenant. This is when God basically joins into a relationship with Abraham. And so read this with me. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, and not Abraham. Abraham gets his name changed a little bit after this point, but we're just going to call him Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the cool thing about having the completed Bible is that we know who that blessing is. We know the fulfillment of that blessing, and it's Jesus. Jesus the Christ, seed of Abraham, is the one who will ultimately fulfill this covenant. So this is why Abraham is a big guy that God chose him to be the father of the Israelites. Father. Now, if you know anything about Abraham, some of the things that we can learn, at this point he's actually 75 years old, which is crazy to think about. 
75 years old and God says, hey, you're going to leave your family, you're going to leave your friends, you're going to leave your wealth, your possessions, all this stuff, and you're going to go, and I'm going to tell you where to go. So Abraham, at the ripe young age of 75, leaves. And also before this point, Joshua 24 talks about how Abraham actually was worshiping idols before this. So God calls Abraham to be the father of the nations. Father of the nations. See, God's grace, Abraham didn't deserve this. God didn't put necessarily stipulations on it. Like, all right, Abraham, you've gone five weeks without idolatry. If you make it a six, I'm going to bless you, dude. Right? He's not saying that. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm calling you out of this and so that you can go and be the father of nations. So God's grace, his unmerited favor towards Abraham is seen here. And we see that at the very outset of Matthew 1 in the genealogy. And then we get... The, the, the funnel gets a little bit smaller as we go to a guy named David, another, another stud in the faith. This guy is great, right? And this is the Davidic covenant. This is when God enters into a relationship with David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. We know that Solomon comes right after David and he establishes his throne, but Solomon eventually dies. And so whoever comes forever and will reign on the throne forever has to be from the line of David. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we see Not only just is God calling Abraham as the father of the nations, he tightens the funnel and says, now from Abraham, this guy David, someone will sit on the throne from David's line. Now, do you guys remember how David got called? You guys remember what David was doing? Yeah, so Samuel, God comes to Samuel and says, hey, uh, my spirit's about to depart from Saul. You're going to choose a new king, go to the line of Jesse, and I will basically anoint somebody to be king from there. So Samuel does that. Jesse gets all of his guys together. And one by one, Samuel says, nope, 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 you're not the guy. The Lord is not anointing you. So Samuel says, hey, is there anybody else? And Jesse says, yeah, well, the youngest, he's out in the fields tending the flock. And Samuel says, all right, go get him. Because he's the one that we're going to anoint. Now, in my mind, and this is why I love youth ministry, is because I think of things like this. Can you imagine being those brothers and Samuel sitting there while you're waiting for David to come back? Like all of them just got denied being king. And Samuel says, hey, you're going to stay here and wait until David comes. Like they're all just sitting there awkwardly waiting for their little brother to get anointed. Like that just boggles my mind. That's got to be so awkward. But yet David, who is out there tending the sheep, tending the flock, God chooses him. And in Samuel, it also talks about how God makes a statement where he says, man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. And so when Samuel chose David to be king, he didn't necessarily look like a king. So much so that Jesse never even considered him to be part of the group. He was out there tending flocks, 
comes back smelling like sheep, smelling gross. Right, God, it's grace was sufficient for Abraham and David. So they didn't prepare for these moments. They didn't prepare and say, all right, I got to clean up my act so that God can use me. I got to clean up. I got to do all these things so that God's grace can be bestowed on me. The beauty of grace and the beauty of what we're seeing in this genealogy is that God freely gives it and that there's no amount of preparation in order to receive it. Freely gives it. Freely gives it. So God's grace is paramount to our preparation and the fact that we receive it, God gives it, God chooses, God calls. And both Abraham and Samuel didn't necessarily prepare or do anything to say, yes, God, I'm worthy of this. Choose me. I got all A's in high school. I joined the all-star track team. God, I'm a sure pick. Pick me. But they were following the Lord. So God's grace is paramount to our preparations. Next is paramount to our problems. Here's the funny thing. If you look at this genealogy, and we're not going to, don't worry, we're not going to read all of it. That would be fun. You could listen to me butcher all these names. But if you look through every single one of those names, every one of those names elicits a story and a narrative. See, if we were to take a poll right here, right now, if I were to ask you, hey, what is your great-great-grandmother's name? Majority of us would probably not be able to answer that question. Because genealogies aren't necessarily as important in today's culture as they were back then. See, back then you wanted to know exactly who your line came from because it was beneficial to you. And when Matthew is checking and tracking the lineage of Jesus, and he knows Jesus has to be from Abraham and has to be from the line of David, they tracked purposely to see that Jesus was the anointed Messiah and anointed Christ. But you would think they would choose people who weren't so messed up in that genealogy. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, Sam, you don't, you don't know my life. You don't know. There's no way God would ever forgive me. There's no way God would ever give me his grace. Sam, you don't know the stuff that I've been through. We're about to run through some names that'll make you feel very encouraged. And so we're not going to list out all these names because there's so many of them. But I just got a couple, couple of them. And so we're going we're gonna to hit kind of the big ones. Uh, Abraham, again, great guy. But guess what? He was a chronic liar. So much so in Genesis 12, if you look at his life, he was traveling, going into a new kingdom. And he was worried because his wife was really pretty and beautiful. He was worried that the king was going to kill him and take his wife and marry her. And so he grabs Sarah and says, hey, I'm going to need you to be my sister for this. So that whenever he comes to marry you, like, he won't kill me. Like, I, don't tr- I, I trust God, but not enough for, for him to intervene here. You're, you're going to need to be my sister. What? Like, Abraham says, hey, you're going to need to be my sister. And here's, here's the kicker. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This not only happens once, twice. In Genesis 20, he does the exact same thing. So Abraham, the father of the Israelites, had sin and problems and was a messy person. Then we looked at Judah, who was a slave trader, right? His little brother, Joseph, had the dream that all of his brothers were going to bow down to him. And Judah and his brothers were like, yeah, that's not happening, little brother. 
And so they see Joseph coming to them from ways away. And what do they do? They stick him in a well because they didn't want to necessarily kill him. And then Judah, in his infinite wisdom, says, why would we leave him here when I can make a nickel and we could sell him? And so Judah is in this line and sold his brother into slavery for the Egyptians. And again, God used that for good. But the lineage of Jesus is filled with messy people. Then we have David. Again, David was an adulterer and a conspirator to murder, right? Supposed to be off a of war, wasn't. Saw Bathsheba, had an affair with her, and tried to cover it up by murdering his, her, wife, or her husband. And so we see that like all these people have messed up past. And then Rehoboam was the guy that took over after Solomon in the kingdom. And this guy went to wise counsel because people were coming up to him and saying, hey, you need to ease off of how hard you're taxing your people. And the older counsel's like, yeah, okay, that's good. You should do that. Definitely do that. They'll be loyal to you. They'll be your subject. Everything will be good. And so then Rehoboam goes to his younger friends, right? And his younger friends say, no, be harsher. Encourage more taxes. Charge the labor more. Because then they'll really respect you and submit to you. And so Rehoboam says, yeah, that's, that sounds good. I'm going to do that. So it tells the people that the kingdom ends up splitting. And we get the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. So with Rehoboam in one decision, splits the Israel kingdom. Splits it. See, God's grace is paramount to our problems and the fact that all of us have problems and we sin and we struggle and we wrestle with stuff in life. But here's the deal. If God can use people like this to introduce Jesus Christ, then God can use people like us to show people God's grace. See, there's no sin that's too far, right? There's no, there's no thing that we do that separates us from God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so when we look at the lineage, we look at the people, and we see how messy they truly are. How messy they truly are. And then the last one, paramount, to our perspectives. When you look at the genealogy, there's also some unique stuff in the fact that if you look at it, there's actually women in there. Which again, in our society, right, that's not that big of a deal, considering we don't really do genealogies anyway. But in that society, which is primarily patriarchal, which means the guys did everything, including women in a genealogy, to a Jewish audience was unheard of. Unheard of. Not to mention the type of women that were in this genealogy. And so when we look at it and we see, we see Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, by Tamar. We have Rahab in there. We have Ruth. We have the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. And then we have Mary, whom Christ was born. And so when we look at these women, we see not only is there women in a genealogy, which is totally countercultural, but we also see that most of them were Gentile. 
not even from the Jewish like heritage, not even from the Jewish line. And so again, you're talking about people that are totally counter-cultural. And so as we run through a couple of these, right, Rahab, she was the, the adulterer that was in Jericho, the spies, Israelite spies go in, right? She saves them, hides them, helps them escape, and basically says, I know the Lord is with you. She was a Canaanite, not even like Jewish. And yet she got grafted into Jesus's lineage, grafted in. And then the last one we're going to go through this morning is Ruth. Again, Ruth is a Moabite. Tragic story if you read through Ruth 1. She was traveling with her family. Both Ruth's husband, father-in-law, and brother-in-law all die. And so there is no one who is taking care of Ruth. There is no one who can protect her and give her food and to help her. But yet she says to Naomi that she's going to cling to Naomi Naomi's gods would be her God. Naomi's people would be her people. So God, in his infinite wisdom, and Ruth said, I will graft you into this lineage. I will graft you in. See, people that are so countercultural, outcast, misfits, people that we would never expect would ever come into faith, Jesus says, hey, if you look at my, or God says, if you look at my lineage, you will see the grace that I bestowed on outcasts, on sinners, on people who we never thought would come to know Jesus. See, God's grace truly is paramount and sufficient for all. Because here's the deal. There is no man or woman that can't come into the fold of God. See, God's grace is sufficient for them. See, God's grace is sufficient for the Auscats, for the misfits, for the men, the women, the Jews, the Gentiles. See, God's grace is sufficient for all of us. How often do we think that? When we say, my, Sam, my, my friend would never step into church. You just don't understand. You don't understand, Sam. He's rough. He don't like these people. Uh, he would never step foot into church. He would never come to know God. He would never be saved by his amazing grace. Here's the story of Matthew 1 as we look how Jesus was announced and anointed as Messiah. We also see in the background woven these trends of grace to say that, hey, all people can come into the fold of God. Church, that is encouraging news. Because no matter where we are at with our life, no matter what we think God can't forgive, what we think we're not good enough, what we think is beyond what Jesus can do, Matthew's genealogy tells us that's not. See, Jesus came through a line of sinners to save sinners. Jesus came through a line of sinners to save those sinners. See, no one is beyond the reach of the cross. And when I was reading through Matthew 1, it just hit me. Because how often do I put people in a box and say, yes, these type of people can come to the faith, but these people can't. So when we talk about preparation, we talk about how nothing they can, they can do to earn or deserve God's love. It's a free gift. It's called grace. 
But then in the back of my head, I'm saying, no, but you really got to clean up your act because if I'm walking into church with you, like, I don't want people to judge me. Or whenever we talk about people with problems and they start talking about the sins that they're in, and we're like, man, God, can you really forgive this? Can you really forgive that? And when I look at my life, it's like, God, can you really forgive that? Can you really forgive that? Or people who are on the, the outcast, maybe they're, they're, either they're rich or they're poor, or they don't have this certain type of job. Can God, can you really forgive those people? Can you really forgive those people? So after college, again, graduated, praise the Lord, right? After college, I went to work for an engineering company. And it was an oil company. And so as part of their like, requirements for their new engineers, I had to serve time on an oil rig. And if you don't know what an oil rig is, I got a picture for you. Oh, it's so pretty. So I got to spend about 10 months on one of these things. And I was traveling between South Texas, Oklahoma. I was kind of traveling all over the place. And I would do 14 days on. So I would work for 14 days straight at 12-hour days. And I'd get seven days off. Yeah, they were so nice. Seven days off. So great. And so I would work on these oil rigs, doing night shift, day shifts, all these different things. I met so many people. Rough people. Majority were ex-convicts who couldn't get a job. And oil rigs was the only place that didn't really care about background checks. Most of the only words they knew how to say were cuss words. Like that was the highest their vocabulary went. Right? They would talk about terrible things. They would talk and do just things that are so far from what was normal for me growing up in a Christian home. And here's the thing. I loved it. I loved interacting. I loved talking with those people because it reminded me of God's grace. I had so many meaningful conversations because I just looked and acted differently. And I will never forget, I was talking with one guy. His name is Cruz. Again, bonus points if you ever name your kid Cruz. Super cool name, right? His name was Cruz, and I will never forget. We're sitting on the, on the rig floor. We're putting pipe into the hole. We're messy. We're oily. We're disgusting. We've been doing it for like eight hours at this point. And out of nowhere, literally left field, he says, Sam, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, yeah, Cruz, I am. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And he looks at me and he says, why don't you ever tell me about Jesus? What? Is it really this easy? I had never, like, it never crossed my mind. It never occurred to me that I should be verbally talking about Jesus like this. Why? Because there was no way on earth that these people would ever be open to the gospel. And then while I'm sitting there thinking through all this stuff, he says this next phrase. And he thought that one was gut-wrenching. He says this. He looks at me and he says, Do you think that I'm too far gone? Do you think that I'm too far gone? Church, who is our cruise? Who is our cruise? Who is the person in our life where we're like, there is no way. There's no way that this person would ever be open to the gospel. There's no way that God's grace could ever cover 
what they've done. Sam, you don't know what they've done. As I'm sitting there reflecting about Cruz and the opportunity and the gospel sharing moments I had on the rig floor, being gross and disgusting, putting pipe into a hole after eight hours. Matthew 1 speaks so much encouragement. So much encouragement. Because as you look at Matthew 1, you look at the people, the types of people that God grafted, and by his grace, because they didn't deserve it, they didn't earn it, they didn't do anything to get it, grafted into Jesus' lineage, I can see people like Cruz coming to know the Lord. See, maybe there's that person at your school or in your lunchroom that's like, man, like that, yeah, Sam, I already know who you're talking about. I got his name down. I got her name down. I already know who my Cruz is. Maybe it's your office mate. Maybe it's the person in your life where you're like, man, I go and see this person 40 hours a week. I'm stuck with them, and they're stuck with me. Right? Maybe they're in your office. Maybe they're in your family. Or maybe it's you. I think so often we're like, yeah, we have all these people. But then I look at my life and I'm like, God, can you really forgive me from this? Can you really show me your grace? God, in the midst of all that life is, can you really save me? And see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what God did so many years ago through his son. Is that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it was freely given. Freely given. See, God's grace stands paramount and sufficient for all. The common thread all throughout the genealogy, not, that, not just to say that Jesus is the rightful heir of Abraham and David, and that he's on his throne, but the interchange of grace woven all throughout the stories in that genealogy. How God saved and impacted and grew people who, from cultural perspectives, thought were so far gone. If God can do that, God's grace is sufficient for us. Man, imagine what life would look like. Imagine what church would look like, what your job would look like, what your family would look like if we lived in that reality every day. Like God's grace is paramount and sufficient for all. His grace is paramount and sufficient for all. So at this time, we're actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to invite the band. They're going to go ahead and come back up. But we're going to close with a song. And this next song, there's a line that I want us to just reflect on. It says, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. See, the beauty of the gospel is not that we have to attain God's grace. The beauty is, is that God's grace steps down to us. Steps down to us beauty of the gospel is that God's grace steps down to us. So when we read that line, that God's goodness, that God's grace is running, it's chasing, and it's running after us, maybe we live in that, that we would, we would enjoy God's grace. We would enjoy that. And so when we, as we close, let us reflect on that line, let us reflect on this song, and let us be thinking, who is my cruise? 
who was the person that I, I, I thought maybe too far gone? But God's grace is sufficient for them. Let's pray. God, we come before you, Lord, and we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the genealogy in Matthew, Lord, that shows us and tells us so many different stories of your grace. God, from, from messy people who have sinned, God, from people who we've totally written off as misfits or outcasts or people that there's no way that we could see you loving, and from people, God, that we think have to earn your grace, have to get their life together, have to get all these things in order in order for us to accept your grace. But Lord, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of this genealogy, Lord, is that you sent your son. on the cross exchanged his righteousness for our sin God that so we are made holy through faith God we don't deserve it but it's the most beautiful act of grace grace from professors from failing grades pale in comparison to the grace that you've given us through your son Lord allow us to walk in that Lord allow us to love that and delight in that and God that your spirit convict and challenge us to find people to pour out your grace to. Lord, knowing that you are strong enough to save. God, so where we're at right now, Lord, convict us, challenge us, God, but also encourage us and know, Lord, that no one is too far gone. God, and that includes ourselves. Let us revel in your mercy, Lord, and let us see and taste how your goodness and your grace chases and runs after us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray for blessings as we leave, as we go out into our communities, into our schools, into our jobs. And Lord, let us be grace bearers. Let us be people who give and bring grace with us. We pray this in your, in your precious and son's holy name through the lineage in Matthew 1, from the grace that you have given through all people.